Hello, everyone. I'm Diana Riza, and pronouns are she, her, they. And this is Shantae Hanks. Welcome to the Diversity in Higher Education podcast. The Diversity in Higher Education podcast is recorded out of Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, Connecticut. We welcome experts from the university community, as well as public and private representatives to discuss issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the intersection of higher education, culture, and public policy. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about healthcare access for black and brown communities. And today we'll continue that conversation with Dr. Randolph Brooks. And if you're like me, which means you were not at our last conversation with Dr. Brooks, you are in for an extremely timely conversation. As a reminder, Dr. Brooks is the Multicultural Programming and Outreach Coordinator at Southern Connecticut State University. His research and practical expertise in counseling have made him an invaluable resource to the university community, as many first-generation students are learning to navigate their own mental and physical self-care in the middle of a pandemic. Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for being thank here you. again. <laughs> thank you for having me again. <laughs> so, Dr. Brooks, as we've been in this state of, of, of health crises and certainly uh, around so much trauma in our world. Uh, we, how, do we, how does Southern um, Connecticut State University and higher ed begin to talk about care for our students? How, how do we begin to do that? Well, the term the terminology or the term care can be one that can feel a bit nebulous for many people. But at its core, what we're really talking about is being able to transmit that message to others that you are cared for here, transmitting a message in which we're saying that you belong here. If you're talking about the institution, for example, just that notion of recognizing that regardless of where you may fall on either the political spectrum or anything like that, for the most part, you belong with us here at Southern because we care about you. We care about your beliefs. We care about your well-being. And that's where we're talking about moving forward when it comes to how we as a campus community can embrace everybody here at Southern. It's really about capacity building at some point with respect to do we have the capacity for all of our students? And so as we're talking about these messages of care these messages of understanding and tolerance and really a social justice message. We're really talking about how are we able to build our capacity to be a big tent for all of our students. You know, it's interesting that you talk about belonging and care community. And as we as institutions uh, try to re outreach to our students, this sense of diverse diversity and inclusion and belonging. And sometimes we, we try to be sensitive to not, there's not a one model or engagement that fits all students. And, you know, 
I want, if you could say a little bit more about that, recognizing that uh, when we talk about community, at least at Southern, uh, about 65% or maybe a little higher, uh, our students are commuters. So as they're moving in as commuters coming into our community, how, how do we talk about that sense of engagement with all of them, knowing that they're not on our campus for very long and then they're coming, they're returning back to their communities? How do we talk about care in, in that context? Well, we do have an excellent um, student involvement de department um, run by um, Ms. Um, Denise Bentley Drobish and with, um, Oh man, Daphne and oh my goodness, I'm having a mental break. Eric, and Eric, Daphne and Eric, yes, I don't want to forget them. Um, so they definitely do this work with respect to trying to outreach to our uh, commuter population on campus. But it seems like we need to recognize that as a department, we can't leave that type of work of outreaching and engaging to commuters to just one department when we know that our commuters are engaging with various departments. So how is it that, how are our academic faculty outreaching to our commuters? How are our um, staff interacting and engaging with our commuters? Or are we essentially leaving that work to um, just one department? And that's something that we as a institution need to make sure that we're being mindful of as we recognize that there are so many more areas in which we can work now and that's the hard part is about being able to put in that work and it's not so much saying that shame on you people for not working but it's about being able to reimagine the work that we do especially in the time of a pandemic in which while we have you know as you mentioned you know, about 65 percent of our students are commuters but right now the vast majority of our students are online and so being able to outreach to them but doing it in a way in which we aren't just saying hey come to this come to this webex thing or come to this teams thing but being able to transmit that message that i know you are in waterbury i know that you're in stanford i know that you're in bridgeport and we miss you and as much as we miss you in our classes we hope that you're safe because again we're still in the middle of a pandemic and so while and, and we're actually coming up to Thanksgiving as well. I was just having this conversation with my wife just yesterday, you know, how it's going to be different mm -hmm. this year. You know, last year for Thanksgiving, right. it was the first Thanksgiving where I hosted her family. So her mother, her father, her brother, they came over to our house and I cooked. And like, well, this year, yeah, who am I cooking for? You guys. <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be great. But having to just reimagine how we interact and how we engage with our students. And doing it from a level of, I care about your safety, I care about your well-being, and I want you to know that even though you haven't seen me in person, I still see you and I still care about you. That's a hard one to really wrap our heads around because it's going to require us to think about the positions that we have on campus, the positions that we have within our departments, and see how we can actually expand mm -hmm. it to not step on anybody's toes, but to re reinforce the same message that's coming from other departments. Well, you 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 know you make a very good point, and to remind ourselves and and mindfulness practices and and being more understanding, empathetic than ever before, and even prior to the pandemic, I would say, and, and tell me, 
if you could provide me with maybe some suggestions, because even when we were on the ground, uh, faculty and staff and I have to believe they're probably listening um, and wanting some some a toolkit, right, of, of how to do this work. Uh, we, we talk about being kind and um, respectful and empathetic to difficulty and experiences that we may not um, directly understand. But even, again, as I was saying, before the pandemic, um, faculty and staff, how do they bring their whole self to understand other, to understand difference, to understand struggle and and be able to, uh, when thinking about belonging, that it's not that necessarily these different communities are adjusting to the institution, but how do we adjust to them? Any any thoughts on how to build the toolkit for, for faculty and staff if, if it's missing? Oh. I would say it's definitely a an individual tool, toolkit. So what may work for me may not say work for anyone else. But at the foundation, it's about being able to recognize that we are here in this space together for a common purpose. And that common purpose isn't my success, it's your success. The entire reason why faculty teach at Southern isn't necessarily for the faculty, but it's for the student. And being able to start from mm -hmm. that baseline that I want you all to succeed. Everyone who's in my class, I want you to succeed. I don't know what my def I don't know what your definition of success is. You know, so being able to get on that page of what is your definition of success and how do I help you get to your definition of success. And that is yeah, a way like of that. looking at things that's a little different because you know when you are that math professor, your first priority is teaching math. And while that is definitely your top priority, that's why you're hired, but you're also here to help these students move forward in life. And that's where it starts to become important to have that relationship with the student. Now, we definitely know that that's gonna be easier for some than others, especially if you have you know, the, the 55 person classroom versus you're the individual who has five people in your class, but being able to, at the very mm -hmm. least, transmit, again, transmit that message that I care about your success just as much as I care about you. That is definitely an intangible that has to be developed over time. It's not the sort of thing that you get taught in grad school. You're not taught how to transmit caring messages to students. You know, you're taught the subject material but then there's these whole other set of soft skills in which you're trying to let the students know that when you're in my class, I want you to succeed. I want your success. You know, you hear faculty all the time talk about, well, these are my office hours, come by and see me. But then they're in their office and no one shows up. That's right. You know, so that's so right. this isn't, so that's, that's not right. a knock against the faculty yeah. because they do, they do that. They're, they're saying, come by and see me. But then also reinforcing, you don't come by and see me just because you have a question about your math test. Come by and see me, period, because I am at a place in which I can help you. I'm at a place in which I want to help you. So yes, you have a question about um, question number five on the exam. You have a question about the homework assignment. Come by and see me in my office hours. But if you have a question, period, about anything that has to do with this institution, anything about 
what you want to do as your career, come and see me as well. You know, we had these we had these um, departments set up, career advising. You know, make make use of it. Yes. But also, don't just use this as just that singular resource. Again, everybody on the campus, we have that same goal of student success, but being able to let students recognize and being able to have the students recognize, that's why I'm here. I'm here for your success. I'm not here for mine. I've already had my success. Now it's about you guys getting your success. And that's why we're here. It's an easy thing to say, but it's really difficult to transmit until you act, unless you actually believe it. Believe it and then actualize yes. it, right? Uh, you know, be, become, do it, <laughs> period. It, it, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you started the conversation uh, about um, the role of so many, you know, student affairs uh, really having uh, their, uh, one of their primary roles is to engage, um, you know, even with our commuters and, and how do we, how does that kindness and engagement permeate throughout the institution? But what I find, and, and I'm not saying Southern uh, doesn't have, uh, particularly from faculty um, outside of student affairs uh, and staff, that um, sometimes don't feel like that's their responsibility to do that. Their responsibility, as you were saying, I'm here to teach math uh, and that's okay, but how do, do we build the capacity for folk who don't see themselves as playing that role uh, with their soft skills to reach out, how do we build, how do we change that mindset that it is in all of our interests when we talk about educating everyone, we're educating on all levels. Um, I don't claim to be a therapist or do counseling, but how would I, as, as an administrator, be more empathetic and have the the uh, the skill level to to do some very basic reaching out. I don't know if if, if that makes sense or not, but it it it's kind of a cultural shift to how faculty see their role and staff outside of student affairs, and how do we build their capacity for that? Um, I mean, I know you mentioned about being a little bit more. Uh, you know, this is success for your student. What would that look like for them? Um, anything else that you think would have building capacity for them? Any other insights to, to that work? Because I feel that it's it's a culture shift. It is, it is a bit of a culture shift because for so long, we've operated within silos. You've had student affairs yes. in one silo. You've had academic affairs in another silo. And the idea of trying to bring these, these two together, it is very difficult because, it's again, it is a rethinking. No, so it's not so much saying that, okay, professors, I now need you to do this, 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 and this. It's really more along the lines of do the job that you're doing now, but remind the students that you're here for them. And that's a, a build, a, in part building the community yes. because, you know, we, we don't want this to be a case in which, you know, we have the, the faculty thinking like, you know, I'm here for you to sip from my cup of knowledge. It's a case of, no, I'm here to impart what I've learned to you so that you can move forward. You know, so the shift is, it's, it's a slight subtle shift because, you know, you're still teaching, you're still doing all of those responsibilities, but you're doing it from a lens of, I want you to learn. And we know that that's what faculty already believes. I want you to learn, but it's now it's about 
having the students recognize that this is what the faculty is trying to do. I want you to learn. It's not so much for me just sitting oh, standing up here and reviewing all this stuff and teaching this, but I want you to learn it because it's going to help you propel forward. And that's really the key. You know, so oftentimes the shift isn't in the work that you do. The shift is in how you do that work. Because again, this the goal yes. yeah. is the same, but it may feel a little different or the presentation may be slightly different, but the work is still the same. It's funny you say that you mentioned a culture shift because I was thinking as listening uh, to the two of you talk about this, I think it's like culturally responsive teaching. It's the responsibility of educators to consider the student holistically in their approach. So since we're undergoing a culture shift in our society as a whole, I would think that it's, it's expected and, you know, um, it's, it's impressed upon teachers to do the necessary shifting in their approach to teaching. I mean, many teachers have had to learn how to uh, <laughs> do their presentations online. That's a culture shift um, and for some a culture shock, um, but they have to be responsive to the needs of our students. So I think that um, if they didn't go into this with that level of flexibility, then yeah, it, it may be shocking to their system, this cultural shift, but I look at it um, as that approach is necessary. So if you have, um, for example, when you started teaching, if you started teaching you know, over 30 years ago, your classroom um, makeup may have looked vastly different than it does today, but I, I feel it's the you know, responsibility of the teacher to figure out how can I capture the interest of all of my students? Uh, what do I have to do? How do I have to modify these lesson plans? And I think that approach um, makes them more effective, obviously, as a teacher and the campus as a whole, as we shift into this social justice um, campus and curriculum. What, do you, what are your thoughts well, on Well, as you mentioned, you know, teaching 30 years ago, 30 years ago, teachers used chalk to write on the chalkboard. <laughs> and then you move from chalk, you move from chalk, then you had the transparencies, then you, and the overhead projector, then you moved into the, <laughs> the computer, and, and now we're dealing with the whiteboard and computer, and now you're dealing with the smart boards. And these professors, have, they have adjusted as, as students have adjusted. So again, when you're talking about that culture, that cultural shift, this, at least to me, feels like an easier one than all of those that have come before. The thing about it is when you were talking about student so-and-so, I noticed that you were struggling in this last exam. Let's have a, let's have a talk. What's, what's going on? You know, and the thing mm -hmm. about it, that's the sort of thing that students are looking for when it comes to that level of care in which you know, we have the faculty that will reach out to the students. And in fact, let's no, I'm not trying to beat up on anybody because I know faculty members do this. <laughs> I know faculty members are reaching out to their students. And I know that at times students are responsive and at times students aren't responsive. So this isn't a case in which we're trying right. to beat up on anybody. I don't want it to feel like that at all. Yeah. And, and it is a case yeah. as we're talking about as well, Shante just brought up, this, this is a university that's in a shifting position towards a social justice model. And when we're talking about social justice, 
at least as a part of my definition for social justice, is we're looking at a level of equity. And when we talk about that level of equity, you know, we're looking at trying to make sure that students are receiving a level of service that they need in order to move forward. And so for some, it does require that faculty member to reach out a bit more. And let's be honest, this isn't just faculty, this is staff as well. You know, it's, it's, it's everybody. Yeah. I'm even talking to myself sometimes when I have a client who doesn't show up for a session, I need to remind myself, yeah, I should be emailing them. I should be emailing them. You know, I, I, I'm not gonna sit here and get angry that someone missed a session that I could have used for somebody else who wanted to come in. You know, so reaching mm -hmm. out and what's going on with our students, reaching out what's happening. As, you, as we know, there's a level of stress that these students are experiencing that no other students have experienced before. And it's not that Southern is unique in any other institution. It's 2020 is unique to any other year. You know, the shifts that we've had yes. to make back in March, every, everything was on ground. And within two weeks, we had to shift from everything being on ground to everything being virtual. Brand new software, people having to now get brand new computers, people trying to figure out, does the internet work in my house properly? People trying to figure out, can I find a space in my one bedroom apartment with my family that I can teach a class, that I can see clients, that I can do my job? So 2020 has been a year of adjustments. And so this isn't necessarily saying, well, you guys haven't been adjusting. We've been adjusting the entire time. It's now about being able to recognize what are the adjustments that we need to make that are student-centered in a way that hadn't been student-centered before. You know, getting into a position in which we're being more student-centric with respect to the needs of our students, with respect to the thoughts and the desires and the plans of our students. While you may be a psychology professor, your student wants to go to med school. Okay, so med school student, how do we get you from Southern Psych 101 to UConn Med School? You know, how do we get you from here to there? And let's, let's go work, a, let's put together a plan that helps you get from here to there. Now, granted, that is going to be a lot of extra work, but it's also a lot of extra work that's not required by one singular person. Just being able to let that student know that as you're moving forward, I care. So if you want to talk to me in my office hours, come come back, come on by, say hi. We're developing a relationship. And when we're talking about care, relationship is key. We're developing that relationship where you know, where I know you by your first name. And that's hard, but as but over the course of years, it comes it gets to be a bit easier as you keep showing back up. You know, there's students now who I've seen multiple times who if I see them walking through the quad, I know their first name. But I also mm -hmm. have, I also give these students 45 minutes to an hour of my undivided time. Faculty, they don't have that luxury. They, they can't give students 45 minutes of, undi of undivided time every class. But you can get five or 10 minutes in office hours and over time, that turns into something else. <laughs> That's always been a challenge. Um, I, re I remember when I was undergrad and then went on to teach um, and, and be an administrator. And I would always encourage students to 
take advantage of those office hours. I think coming from um, grade school, they look at it as going to the principal's office and not really understanding the value um, of having those office hours, that that attention that you'll have of your uh, faculty member, your professor. Um, it's beneficial. And so I would always try to encourage that. But that that first meeting is is <laughs> always Scary. intimidating, I think. It is. Yeah. You know, you're sitting in this you're sitting in this room with this person who has all authority and you're just, you know, that that little kid from fresh out of high school. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah, no no doubt. I, you know, as I look back and okay, it's been a long time since I was in high school and college. I still remember um, my mom and dad um, growing up saying, all you have to do is work harder. Just keep, just stay focused and work harder. I learned along the way that working harder was not gaining benefits because I hadn't developed the skills that I needed to be successful. So for example, writing has never been my, my number one gift. I've had to learn it's been a hard lesson to get better at it. When I had professors that would grade me you know, not as well as I would have liked early on in my career, I have to say I it 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 was traumatic for me because I was used to getting very good grades in high school, then shifted to college and things didn't look the same early on. Uh, for me, that was traumatic. So if anybody um, asked. Diane, it would be good for you to go to the counseling center or to the writing center. I have to say that a lot of uh, that took courage for me to do that. And I chose that I was just going to work harder to get better. I could do this on my own. I didn't I didn't need all that support. And I'm wondering and I'm, I don't want to generalize for all underrepresented students for sure. But for me, that was hard. I, I didn't feel that I had the support that that my support was my family. They just kept loving me saying things are gonna get better and you just have to work harder. Any, Dr. Brooks, I know that you, you probably have a lot to say about this because of the work that you do with, as, you've, as we've been talking about this demographic shift in college, what are you seeing along the way? Um, my day, I would, have, I, I would never go to a career uh, or writing center um, or a health counseling office to, to seek help, what what are you seeing when it when it comes to again? It is about cultural flexibility and cultural shifts, and having us be more understanding of that demographic. But are there what other shifts are you seeing that maybe underrepresented students don't see comfort yet in reaching out and asking for help? Is that a thing? Is that still oh, a thing? It's, it is definitely a thing. And, but there are a myriad of reasons why it's a thing. Uh, one of the primary reasons is actually stigma. And the thing that comes about stigma, well, before we get to that, one of the other things, and this is something that's also a bit more common when it comes to students, is there's that fear of who is this person? I don't talk about my stuff with anybody, let alone a stranger. I don't let my mom and my dad know what's going on in college. Would you want me to talk to some random stranger who is off in that mm -hmm. office someplace? 
and that's that's a hard move for students to make, which is actually part of the reason why my position was actually created because I try as much as I can to get out to the students. And you don't see me in the, the office, you see me out in the community. That one is, you know, of course, a little more difficult this time or this year, given the current uh, situation on campus. But in general, the role of trying to get to the students, trying to get to where the students are and introducing myself to them in their space, that's a primary reason for this, this role because it's hard just to talk to somebody that you don't know, let alone someone that you've never seen before. But then when it comes to stigma, that one is a little more challenging because stigma is something that is really passed down from generation to generation to generation. And at times, not always, but at times it's a protective factor. At times it's useful, it's, it's been helpful. We don't talk about certain things. We don't talk about that outside of this house. Or you work hard because you know, we've, we've gone through it. You have to work twice as hard to get half as far with that notion that the, you know, the world is not equal. There is no equity. So you have to work so much harder to get to where you're trying to go. So if you're having a problem, you have to work through it. And that is something that we've, we've all experienced growing up, but it's something that still persists because in some in some respects, that's what we're seeing today. Like I know we talked, we would say we weren't going to get too much into the election, but when we look at what we had with President Obama and what we had with with Trump, like I'm not trying to make this at all political, but we're seeing oh, wow. somebody who <laughs> has had all these achievements, and then you had somebody else who didn't, and mm. we saw the backlash. And so we still have this perception of, well, we have to work twice as hard and we are seeing it, you know, top notch undergrad, top notch grad school. It's done the work to warrant the position. And then somebody else, we didn't see that, but yet and still in a similar space, in a similar space. And so that notion of I have to do this on my own because I can't count on somebody else. That is something that we have ingrained in our community that in one hand has helped us move forward, but it's helped us move forward at the detriment of ourselves. And now you have this You know, Dr. Brooks, before you move away from that, right, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I bet that Michelle and Barack are teaching Sasha and Malia that same thing. Despite them being first children, um, you know, the, the daughters of the first Black president, uh, and, and having an Ivy League education, I bet they are still being taught that in their home about doing twice as much. And I, I don't want to step away from that because um, I do have some questions for you and I couldn't wait to have the opportunity. I'm so sorry I missed you and Dr. Ariza's first um, discussion because it was so riveting, but I'm so glad I have a second chance at the bite of the apple. But before we step away from that, I took a note when when Dr. Reza brought that up in, in terms of um, that comfortability, um, that stigma that you spoke of. It, it, it's, it's an example of the difference between a first generation student and a continuing education student. The contextual knowledge of college culture and campus life, I, I, I studied that 
and I'm, I'm actually including a portion of that in my my dissertation right now. So it's re it's resonating with me because that makes a huge difference. You being out on the campus, students having that rapport with you, it definitely helps in particular for those first generation students that, um, as we were speaking about a moment ago, they see their their faculty and, and, and professors as uh, they did in high school, as, as like going to the principal's office. Whereas, and if they're first generation in particular, they don't really have anyone to explain to them that's different now. You're on a college campus, that culture is different. That relationship that you build with your professor is different. Um, and, and I would love to do a discussion about that in the future, but <laughs> where I was going is, okay. In the black community, for example, talking to a psychologist or a therapist, seeking any type of therapy was considered taboo. And I say was because I think it's getting better, but it was considered airing your dirty laundry to a stranger. And if if an issue was troubling, you would you would pray about it. <laughs> You'd go see your pastor. And historically, um, and even currently, I gotta say, folks, they go to the barbershop, they go to hair salons or even to their elders for wisdom. So do you see that there's been a shift in and in, in how we're encouraging students from those communities? to seek care on campus when needed. Yes and yes. And the reason why I said yes twice is because um, going back to the, um, the previous discussion for a quick second, what we're talking about are the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers to these institutions, the gatekeepers. So um, initially I never viewed myself as a gatekeeper. I was like, oh, I'm just another cog in the system. But in actuality, mm. in part of the role that I'm working, I do become a bit of a gatekeeper because I'm trying to have people come in. I'm trying to let you all know that we're here. I'm trying to break down those walls. And so with what um, Shantae was just bringing up with, you know, going to your pastor, going to the barbershop or the hair salon, you know, mental health professionals have been going into those spaces. You know, we're not necessarily going to set up shop in someone else's shop, but letting people know we're here for this, you know, doing some, some um, slight gatekeeper training with barbers, you know, and that sort of training with respect to, hey, if you someone's bringing these things up, these are some of the things you could say to them as you direct them to to us. It's not trying to find clients. It's not trying to, you know, build up a private practice or anything like that. But it is about tearing down these walls that have been set up for a long time because there was a time in which I know Shante was alluding to this. No, there was a time in which people could not trust medical professionals. There was a time where people could not trust healthcare providers, mental health professionals, or anything like that at all, because you didn't know if they were going to air my dirty laundry or if what I said now was actually going to remain completely confidential or if I was going to be taken out of context and somebody was going to run with it. And before I know it, people are coming into my house. And that's not what we want. But what we do want is that space in which we can talk openly and freely, knowing that I can just get this stuff off my chest. And when I leave here, I can leave it there and go on about my day. And those are the, that's the same sort of talk that we would get from our pastors. You know, take your burdens to the cross, leave it there mm -hmm. and go on about your day. You go into your barbershop or your hair salon, you talk to that trusted professional, you talk to that trusted friend. And you can just leave that stuff there as you move on. And 
it's funny you say that though, because it is about trust, right? Because when you go into the barbershop or the hair salon, it's not a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Mm -hmm. It's usually a pretty much a group dialogue and you actually trust, um, you know, the opinions and the input of the folks around. There's no, uh, you know, NDA mm -hmm. being signed. There's, That's right. You know, That's right. It, it could leave out that door as soon as one of those folks leave and go on to the next conversation. But there's that trust in, in your local community that um, that information is going to stay there or at least stay within the community. And you're OK with that versus going to a therapist where it doesn't leave the room. Well, and Shantae, Chant you make such a good point. This community, mm -hmm. this this collective of, of not feeling singled out mm. as a one-on-one -on -one that you you got issues, come on in, let me talk to you. It's like, we all got issues. You know, like this yeah. this is a yep. community. So you, you, you're onto something. Uh, thank you for that, Shantae. So Dr. <laughs> Brooks, is there a thing, no. that, uh, as you're doing, that yeah, yeah, can you, can you is, say more about that? That is definitely a thing huh? because when you brought up earlier, Dr. Reza, about community, and that's what Shantae was actually referring to. So when you go to a barbershop and there are five to 10 chairs and there are people in all of those chairs, but you're having a confidential conversation. You know, you're telling them <laughs> stuff that you will tell your therapist, but you trust that they're going to leave that stuff there, even though you don't know for sure, but you know them. And that's the difference. You know them. And right. as the conversation goes, I'm telling my stuff and he's telling his stuff. So... True. Oh, you Your therapist doesn't yeah. do that. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> no. I actually don't want to know. I, I don't want to know too much personal information <laughs> about my therapist. But I, I got to admit, um, my therapist is a black woman. And um, there's a difference. There, there definitely is a difference, I think, um, for some folks in having the ability to talk to someone that has that cultural association that you feel like you don't have to do a, a lot of uh, preliminary work of explaining culturally why certain things are what they are. And you can just tell um, from the way that she nods her head or just what she adds in there that she gets it. And, and it's the same thing that students are looking for even from their faculty. Um, and understandably, it's every every um, faculty member is not going to be from your community, but having some that are um, that get it is very helpful. <laughs> it's very reassuring throughout um, your college career. And even for those that are not from your culture or from your community, just knowing that they kind of get it and get you and that what you're going through is not foreign to them is so helpful. It is. And as you're pointing out, you know, just you know, quick research, you know, they're only about 18, well, actually, no, I'm gonna go ahead and round this up. Only about 19% <laughs> of counselors in the US are black. Only. I was gonna ask that question. Are there enough mental health pr practitioners that look like our students of color that, you know, have their same cultural experiences and you've answered and only about you know 21 22 percent social workers only five percent of psychologists you know when it comes to our latinx students maybe 11 percent are counselor 11 percent of counselors in the u.s are latinx maybe 12 percent of social workers maybe a, you know, 
about six and a half percent of psychologists. So in general, some recruiting needs to take yes. place. You you know, we recruit, we 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 actually have initiatives to recruit uh, teachers of color, to recruit students into education programs so we could produce more teachers of color. I don't think I'm seeing that as much in the mental health profession now that I think about it. Maybe social work, but not so much psychology um, and psychiatry. I, I don't recall seeing it. And, and full disclosure, when I was working on my master's at Southern, I had shifted. My undergrad is in secondary education and history. And I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. And I say thought because um, my first semester in grad school, that was my major. And I got to tell you, it was so heavy for me in terms of uh, learning so much about myself. It was overwhelming. I quickly switched back to education because it, it's, it, it, it wasn't so much that um, it, was, it was challenging in terms of the academic work itself, the load. It was, um, I, I think, the, the self-actualization. Uh, wow. It, it it was a lot. I probably should have, before switching, um, looked to maybe a mentor um, or, or gone to some of my professor's hours um, to talk about it. But, you know, it's interesting. None of the professors look like me. Um, I, I really didn't feel, I, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable at the time. And I, I did in education. I have to say in full disclosure, I did my undergrad and a graduate degree and my graduate degrees at HBCUs. And that was a part of the reason for that um, was because- You're writing my dissertation for <laughs> me right now, by the way. But, but, I, but that was honestly part of the reason for that because in my primary and secondary education, I rarely saw anybody that looked like me. And so making that shift to an HBCU where I actually saw the faculty look like me it was actually easier for me to open up to tell people what was actually going on. Going to counseling services and the psychologist is black, was a black man, and like, okay, we do actually exist. Wow. Now, to be fair, <clears throat> that is very uncommon, you know, just given the numbers alone. You know, even though you know, African-Americans make up about 13% of the US population, we're seeing that we're only less than 5% of psychologists. We're seeing that we're a bit more when it comes to social workers and counselors. Actually, counselors are about 13%. You know, so we're still seeing that their strides need to be made. But then also, when we're looking at that level of comfort, because let's be honest, not everybody is a good fit for everybody else. So if I was at counseling services at my undergrad and I didn't have a good fit with the provider, then I'm out of luck. So, you know, just having that representation is a factor, it's a huge factor. And we've seen that, re research has showed that over and over and over again. And just as you know, Shantae was bringing up with the, with the point of, I don't have to explain myself, I can feel like myself. And that's the thing about the barbershops again. You go in there and you feel like yourself. And we have to be honest, there is a level of trust there because you are cutting my hair. And it's not that we're being superficial or anything <laughs> like that, but if something happens here, I have to now wait for who knows how long for the hair to grow back in before I can get it cut again. 
And so that's just a, <laughs> this a bit of a metaphor with respect to having that level yeah. of patience that builds over time. You know, you, you don't go into a barbershop and just pick anybody. You just take your time when you're watching. You're seeing people's work. You're going elsewhere and you're coming back before you're actually making that level of commitment. And we make it sound like it's something significant, but for some people it actually is, especially if, again, if you're in an area in which you only have one place to choose from. And that's kind of what it feels like here. You know, it's interesting, yes. It's interesting, Dr. Brooks, uh, this conversation, uh, as, as we know, uh, we, we could have a, a, a series of more podcasts when it comes to how do we care for each other? How do we continue to build practices of inclusion and a sense of belonging for all? And so this back, this balance of, there's no doubt, and I'm with Shante as well as with you, Dr. Brooks, um, recruiting uh, more health care practitioners, faculty, staff that look like me, look like others is critical, and we're not there yet. I also think uh, that you you started this way. You started this conversation, which is it's on all of us. Like it's on it's everybody's responsibility to be more caring and commit to this understanding that it's not that we we as practitioners as teachers have to also adjust. We we can't expect students still acculturating to Connecticut to Southern Connecticut, how do we make that shift so that more practitioners, all of us are committed to healthy practices for everyone. So that balance, if you, if, I know we're down to, to uh, a minute left um, in our conversation, but if you could just, any last parting words for, for our community and how do we, build that capacity for care for all. You know, we started yeah. that way, right? Um, no. So when we're talking about building that capacity of care, it really is this recognition of what do you have time for? What do you have space for? And that recognition that when it comes to our students, in some way, shape, or form, we have to make that time. Now, that also means that you have to check yourself, too. And why are you here? This isn't a case of, ooh, you're here you have to do X, Y, Z. But it's this point of when you're here for the students, how can you take a little bit of time, how can you take a little bit of your space to pour into your students so that they can not only have a rich, fulfilling experience here, but that they will want to come back to your class again, that they will want to recommend your class to their friends, that they will view you as one of those people that helped them down that road to success. This isn't a case of, you doing this because you are trying to inflate your ego or to inflate your CV. But this is about being able to pour into our students that we have here. And that is a mountain of a job to do, but it's all something that we can all as a community build in together because this isn't the work of just one person, it's the work of all of SCSU. I know we're out of time, I, I <laughs> but I, I just, you know, Dr. Brooks, you took me somewhere the last couple of minutes in the words that you said about the barbershop. Um, and I hadn't thought about it this way, but I'm, I just like to ask if we could dedicate this um, episode to Sharon Johnson Clemens mm -hmm. and her family. Mm -hmm. um, 
Dr. Eric Clemens and her daughters. Sharon was a pillar in the greater New Haven community and she was my hairdresser. <laughs> um, and when we talked about what that relationship is mm. like in our community, and I'm, I'm sorry for getting a little choked up, but it, it's really sobering every time I think about no longer having that person um, that you trust, that every time you, you speak with them, they share, you know, their gems of wisdom with you. Um, you share um, information, personal information with them that you you feel comfortable and confident it's not going anywhere. Um, so to have that relationship that I've built for over 30 years, um, to no longer be able to have that, it's just a testament to what we've been talking about here mm -hmm. in, in our community. So I just would like to, uh, dedicate this episode to, uh, Sharon Clemens. Mm. Shate, thank you. Thank you for thank you. sharing that. D Dr. Brooks. As always, so grateful to you and your work. So appreciate you. Thank you for having me.